X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jeff Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Thursday, July 16th. A great day, as I said before, to subscribe, to rate and review, give it five stars and share with a friend. Today, back in the day, July 16th, 1854, 101 years before the Montgomery bus boycott, Elizabeth Jennings Graham, a school teacher, successfully challenged racist streetcar policies in New York City. Black civil rights figure too often forgotten, including by me. And 90 years later today, back in the day, July 16, 1944, Irene Morgan refused to change seats on a segregated bus in Virginia. Rosa Parks and Claudette Coleman made the bus boycott famous in 1955 in Montgomery, but movement success requires more than any one person. So shout out to Elizabeth Jennings Graham, 101 years prior, and to Irene Morgan, 11 years prior to the Montgomery boycott, and shout out to a benevolent community. And today, back in the day, July 16, 1969, Apollo 11 launched, carrying the first men to land on the moon. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Today on The Local, we'll start with a quick six. As we do, we'll take an in-depth look at the current water crisis in the Warm Springs Reservation with Amanda Squimfin Yazi of Weavers of Unity. And we'll have an interview with Jim Brumberg of Mississippi Studios and Revolution Hall on the recent support from the Oregon legislature on arts organizations and venues. Big move we reported on yesterday. We'll talk to Jim Brumberg about it. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Metro is going to have a big vote today, Thursday, on whether to place a $5 billion transportation bond measure on the November ballot. Metro, in case you need a refresher, is the regional government that serves the Portland area, including Multnomah, Washington, and Clackamas counties. If voters pass the measure, businesses would face a new tax based on the number of employees they have and the size of their payroll. Metro President Lynn Peterson agreed last week to postpone enactment of the proposed tax until 2022. She agreed to make other changes in response to business groups. Critics of the plan say it's not nearly ambitious enough and how it'll change transportation habits to be more community and climate friendly. It does include safety improvements and public transportation extensions throughout 17 investment corridors, they're calling it, across the Portland region. It would include nearly $4 billion for proposed expansion of the MAX train system to southwest Portland, Tigard, and Tualatin, and another billion dollars to go to regional programs, including some safer routes to schools, and replacing diesel buses with electric or low-carbon buses. Metro also hopes and expects to leverage more than $2 billion in federal or state funding, allowing for a total of $7 billion of investment. Metro is still figuring out whether the tax is going to begin with a rate of 0.75%. That's not 7.5%. That's 0.75% of payroll tax in 2022. Or start at a lower rate and gradually increase to 0.75% by 2026. Metro staffers said that's a decision that could be made at a later time after the measure is referred to the ballot. Speaking of things that may appear on your ballot, more on the redistricting measure. Republican Secretary of State Bev Clarno said that she would not appeal Judge McShane's order to give proponents of IP57, that's the redistricting measure, an extra month and reduce their signature requirement by 90,000 valid signatures. But meanwhile, Democrat Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum has filed an appeal to the Ninth Circuit. We're going to continue to follow this story. I think it's going to be the most important thing on the ballot. Democrats currently control the legislature in presidential years, particularly with an unpopular Republican President Donald Trump. Democrats are likely to hold those majorities, maybe build on them. If IP57 does pass, Republicans will have equal power over drawing those lines. 
Proponents argue it'll take line drawing away from elected politicians and give it to a commission evenly divided between Democrats, Republicans, and non-affiliated voters. Proponents, like Republican strategist Rebecca Tweed, who we interviewed, say it's part of a needed push to stop gerrymandering. I say it, gerrymandering. Opponents criticize the measure for being unrepresentative. There are a million registered Democrats in Oregon. There are 700,000 Republicans. The commission does not call for composition representative of those numbers, but instead locks in Republicans to have equal commission spots to Democrats. Opponents say, like my dad says, that something like that might make sense on a national level, but if primarily blue states do that kind of reform and blue states get purpler and red states stay red, it'll just make Congress even more anti-majoritarian than it already is, and Oregon legislature and congressional representation will become less progressive. So anyhow, however you land, there's a lot riding on this. It happens once in a decade. Oregon is getting a new congressional seat. At stake is probably whether that new congressional seat is filled by a Republican or a Democrat. Also, the district lines impact every legislative district, and the composition of the legislature impacts every statewide decision that happens, including the kind of emergency funding stuff that just got passed yesterday. And all of this, by the way, should be a reminder to you to fill out your census form. Your daily dose of data, the New York Times and Harvard University took it upon themselves to rate states on their daily testing capacity. It doesn't look too good for Oregon. The Harvard researchers said that at a minimum, there should be enough daily capacity to test anyone who has flu-like symptoms and additional 10 people for any symptomatic person who tests positive. As a nation, the Times estimates we're only at about 36 percent of the daily testing needed to mitigate the virus. In Oregon, researchers estimate we're about at 49% of the daily tests needed. The good news is we're better than the national average. The bad news is the national average isn't all that good. We're testing about 115 people out of every 100,000 people. The Oregon Health Authority, on the other hand, says that we are conducting a good number of tests, citing a rate of 2% of the population every day. According to the research, Washington State is doing a little better than Oregon, with testing at about 68% of where it needs to be. On Wednesday, we recorded another 282 positive cases. We have 235 people right now in hospitalizations. And something I failed to point out yesterday, when seven people reported dead, that was the highest daily death toll in Oregon since this mess started. If we can wear our masks, keep your distance, stay back, and not spit in each other's faces, we might be able to flatten the curve enough to keep the economy open to some degree. Come on, Oregon, we can do it. And Clackamas County is tapping the brakes. Remember, Clackamas County was trying to separate from Washington and Multnomah County and open up faster? Well, they are putting off reapplying for Phase 2 because they're not meeting three of the six requirements. Cases should be trending down for at least seven consecutive days, but they are trending up. New positive cases should be less than 5%. They're at 29%. And the percent of cases not traced to a known source over the last seven days should be lower than 30%. It's at 47%. Governor Brown, remember, linked the Tri-County area together back in June, stating none of them could move into phase two until all of them could move forward. Now officials are saying they don't want to push the move any further because they fear we might slide back into phase zero, a.k.a. the lockdown we had back in March. So instead, Clackamas County is now asking for targeted economic relief for people and businesses that have been impacted. And leaders are calling on the Employment Department to get its act together. That's their quote, not mine. Some music news. Friends of Noise are trying to get a half a million dollars for an all-age music venue focused on black, indigenous, and people of color. They've been working on a similar plan. Friends of Noise have been working to put together some measure of an all-ages music venue for several years now, and they think this might be their opportunity. Meanwhile, Tree Fort Music Festival has been canceled. The Boise Idaho Festival has been a key convener of the Northwest music scene. They had rescheduled to October. Now they've pushed it to September of next year. Mayor Ted Wheeler now has spoken up about the federal troops in Portland. 
Mayor Wheeler had been keeping a low profile on the topic, but after some national and local press began calling attention to it, he began to speak up. On Monday, he said he's fine with federal troops remaining on federal properties, but he took issue with them engaging with the protesters. And then late Tuesday afternoon, he told the troops to either, and I'm quoting, stay in their building or go home. Meanwhile, Oregon's other lawmakers have been very vocal. Senator Ron Wyden accused Trump of using the troops as his own occupying army. Tuesday night was the 47th consecutive night of protests in Portland, and the first time in three weeks that Rose City Justice led a march from Revolution Hall to City Hall to Pioneer Courthouse Square. The Portland Japanese Garden is temporarily closing. Two workers have now been diagnosed with COVID-19, prompting the garden to close out of, and I'm quoting, an abundance of caution. First person test positive was 13 days ago. When a second employee's test came back positive on Tuesday, officials decided to close the garden. They're going to have a deep clean. They hope to reopen it soon, maybe as soon as tomorrow on Friday. The Japanese garden, like the zoo, like the art museum, has a new method of timed ticketing. It allows guests to enter every 30 minutes in an effort to cut down the line. And seating on the shuttle, though still available, has been limited. A little teeny bit of history. The Portland Japanese Garden opened in 1967 as a symbol of peace between two nations that just a little over two decades earlier were at war. The Jefferson County School District announced that it has plans to have full in-person learning this fall. There will be an option for remote learning for students with health concerns. The county has about 2,900 students, covers the towns of Madras, Warm Springs, and Metolius. Superintendent said his district has a small class size, around 23 students per class, which should allow them to properly socially space. Those sound like pretty big classrooms. Every Oregon school district's reopening plan must be approved by its school board, the local public health agency, and the Oregon Department of Education, according to state guidelines. And the district has not yet laid out details about how that in-person learning is going to look. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. On May 31, 2019, the Tribal Council of the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs approved an emergency disaster declaration due to immediate health threats resulting from a 14-inch water mainline break on the reservation. Water is life. The reservation is without potable water. That declaration was over a year ago. The Oregon Emergency Board allocated funds to the tribes on Monday. The MRG Foundation has also created the Chush Fund to raise desperately needed resources. Amanda Swimfinyazi from Weavers of Unity joins us to give an update and how listeners can support. Good morning, Amanda. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Well, let's let's not beat around the bush here. What needs to get what needs to be done to get water running in the Warm Springs Reservation? Um, right now, there needs to be a major fix within one of the main lines there in Warm Springs. Um, but most importantly, we just, you know, simply we need to uh, get funds to the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs to be able to get it going. So there are both individual efforts or group efforts like the Choose Fund. And then yesterday, there was also an Oregon Emergency Board meeting. What happened at that emergency board meeting? Yeah, so they approved of $3.58 million to be allocated to the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs from the Oregon General Fund. And what is the price tag? How much money is needed to get run, water running again? I'm not 100% sure on the current number to okay. fix the current break. But overall, 
there is a price tag of $200 million that is needed to do a completely new water infrastructure system. Mm-hmm. And tell us about the CHOOSE Fund. Yeah, the CHOOSE Fund, it was started in August of 2019 in response to the need of clean water at the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs. And this was done in collaboration and partnership between the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs and the MRG Foundation. So the MRG Foundation is located here in Portland, Oregon, and it's a very, very unique fund. Um, This allows outside entities and individuals and basically anyone who would love to donate to the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs a way to get money into the tribe. That sounds like a wonderful resource. How has the fundraising been going? Yeah, we to date, um, so I started bringing awareness to this about 15 days ago. Today's mm-hmm. day 15, and as to date, we have raised over $200,000. Um, we have one Facebook fundraiser that is on my personal Facebook, and then we're also bringing awareness to it through the actual website where you can um, donate as well. Sounds like it's going really well, but of course there is a significant need here, um, and so more dollars are needed. How can folks find that fund if they're interested in giving and supporting this work? Yeah, you can go to mrgfoundation.org forward slash choosh fund hyphen fund hyphen water hyphen two forward slash. (laughs) Got it. Thank you for that. And can you give some give folks, our listeners, some insight into uh, sort of how why it's taken so long to get this fixed? I mean, to be honest, I really don't know. You know, I'm yeah. not a water expert, but I I imagine you know that we just there's we're in the middle of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. We're you know we're in very dire need of of getting water, but. You know, at the same time, we have to be mindful of how we're moving about business. You know, everything, even out here in the Portland area, everything slowed down. Mm -hmm. So even communicating with a normal person on the normal basis, you know, it's difficult to get through to people. So I I really honestly don't have an answer, but um, I imagine it's because of uh, the coronavirus and, and the state that we're in right now. Yeah. And do you feel that this issue has gotten enough media coverage? I mean, it definitely could get more media coverage, but Mm -hmm. I also, again, I kind of want to just be mindful of the news that is put out there and make sure the story is not, you know, told in the wrong way or blame is put on any person or individual. Yeah. And so as as you just said, what, what is the right way to cover this? What do you want people to know about this crisis? Yeah, I mean, I I just think, you know, it, it's pretty simple. Water is life. Um, this is a basic human right. And simply put, we just, you know, need help getting, getting water. And I think, you know, there's a lot of news outlets and, and people who are putting stories out there that just, you know, aren't, aren't written well. And it almost sounds like they're, they're putting the blame on, on like our local leaders and that shouldn't be the case it should just be they need a a basic human right at this moment and here's what we need to do to help 
Yeah. And in your words, what's the significance of this sort of crisis happening on a reservation rather than any other part of the country? Yeah, the significance of that, I think, is definitely that on a reservation, most people don't recognize, you know, sovereign nations. Mm-hmm. They kind of, um, they're, they're a, separate, a separate kind of government. And when it when it's comes to a reservation, it's very much um, significant on, in how people move about this. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's very significant, and it's almost in a way hard to in a, hard to figure out a way to move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Amanda, what brought you to this work? What brought your focus to the Warm Springs Reservation and the water crisis? Yeah, so I currently live in Portland, Oregon. I've been here for the last eight years, and Prior to this, I was I grew up in Warm Springs my entire life, and you know this is kind of my way. Like Warm Springs will always be my home. That's where all my family and my friends are, and I will always have them, you know, in my heart. So a big part of being um, part of this is just really trying to help take care of my people and doing whatever I can to be able to get them water and Mm -hmm. you know like my nieces my nephews my my friends who just had babies like they need water and our Mm -hmm. elders everyone needs water and um you know this is almost a way of giving back to a community a community that helped play a big role in raising the woman that I am today Mm -hmm. and how are folks getting by right now without running water yeah, there's, there's, oh man, there's so much community support happening right now on the reservation. Mm-hmm. Um, I could name, gosh, 16 different departments and volunteers off the top of my head right now that are just doing incredible on-the-ground frontline work. And then on top of that, there are a lot of donations going into um, the tribe right now, just from people um, who are living off the reservation right now. There's so many, there's almost like daily supply runs to the reservation from the Portland area and just surrounding areas, people just wanting to help out. And that's being distributed almost daily. And yeah, that's really how people are getting by is just, you know, through donations and then the incredible work that the Warm Springs community is doing to keep each other um, going and making sure that one another is taken care of. Mm. And again, Amanda, how can our listeners help? Yeah, you can um, help by visiting the mrgfoundation.org choosh fund, and that's the best way to help, uh, either donating, even spreading awareness about this. Um, If you just go online and, and look up Warm Springs Water Crisis, you will definitely find something and there is all a lot of links in there if you go on the mrg foundation there's a frequently asked question page and you can just find a lot of information on there excellent amanda thank you so much for joining us this morning and putting a focus on this crisis down at warm springs yeah thank you as well i'm so glad to have been here up next we have my interview with jim brunberg from mississippi studios and revolution hall Jim has been leading the effort to create a new trade organization for independent venues 
while spooling up a statewide advocacy effort to gather needed financial resources to keep these venues alive. Here's Jim with an update from the Monday meeting of the e-board and what's next. Jim, welcome this morning. Good morning. So what happened yesterday? Well, it wasn't just independent venues um, that had a victory yesterday. Yesterday, the emergency board, um, which is part of the Oregon legislature, um, 20 members of the Oregon legislature, decided that uh, the arts were important and supported um, everything from the Shakespeare Festival to the Pendleton Roundup, um, which is, I guess, more than the arts, but just places where people gather. Um, and uh, a lot of nonprofit theaters around the state and music venues around the state including our member venues who are um, dedicated venues who are completely shut down and don't have any other source of income. Mm. So they, they recognize the hardship that's being um, felt by gathering spaces and the importance of the arts. Now, how did you personally get involved in trying to navigate the legislature and financial support for venues? Well, I've never done anything like that before, mm. um, but other venue owners and I when we were first shut down we said you know we we've never had any sort of a trade association or anything like that we've certainly never had a, a lobby or a lobbyist so we phoned each other up and said hey how are you how are you coping with this um and we talked about um the federal aid programs and how they didn't fit because the ppp um for example was basically a program that made it possible for us to bring back employees but we didn't have any work for most of our employees to do mm-hmm. um and we were getting turned down for other programs and other loans just because the nature of our business is, is just such a unique weird business model so we said well we better we better figure out uh, how to not fall through the cracks here and uh, we formed an organization called the independent venue coalition and which is the first time in my knowledge that the venue owners in Oregon have gotten together. But what we learned, we learned a lot about each other in the process, and what we learned is that the, every um, venue in the state of Oregon is independent. Um, the only ones that are that you could ever make any argument for that they're not independent would be the ones that operate on government facilities like uh, or partially owned government facilities like P5. But they're still mm-hmm. extremely independent. Oregon is a wonderful place to be scrappy and independent. There's no corporate-owned uh, entity here in the state as far as venues go. Live Nation doesn't have a venue here. AEG doesn't have a venue here. So whenever you go out and spend money in Oregon venues, that money's going right back into the local community. So we said, well, knowing that, I think we're in a good position to go to the to our legislatures and see if we can qualify for some of this money that the state has received um, that the Treasury has instructed them to give out to businesses who have fallen through the cracks and have been disproportionately um, affected by the virus. And that was us. So you pulled together all these venues, and then knew it was clear that you had a need. The state had resources that, that could help. What was step one once you had the coalition built? Well, the coalition actually is still being built. You know, okay. it's only, We've only had a, a couple of months here, and... Mm-hmm. So we're still talking to people every once in a while, a new entity um, surfaces that we didn't know about. Like uh, just last week, the um, there was a, a little theater that does sort of Shanghai reenactment um, theater out in Astoria uh, surfaced just last sort of last minute. Um, the the first step was just and, and continued the, the, the now step 
is to continue to gather information from venues about what they do. And that mm -hmm. sort of brought us all together so that we can present um, our, our case with a cohesive voice mm -hmm. and uh, present what, what we have in terms of what we offer to the state in terms of economic impact and culture and community uh, and, and things like that. So we reached out to our own representatives mm -hmm. and said, hey, how does this work? Um, Rob Nose in Southeast Portland um, is a state representative. He ended up being a, a real champion for us in terms of helping guide us and hone our message, uh, as did Kathleen Taylor, a senator in Southeast Portland. Um, these people have more venues in their district than any other in the state of Oregon. Um, but James Manning in Eugene was also extremely helpful because he has a lot of venues in his district. So we phoned them up and we just sort of got their advice on how do we present our case and how, how do things work in, in Salem or in virtual Salem. And was there ever any doubt that the resources would flow? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there, there's still doubt. We don't have checks in our pocket. <laughs> um, we don't have the relief yet. There's There's... I, I don't know exactly what the next step is. This vote is a manifestation of their willingness to support us. And I, I know that, you know, now we have uh, funds that are earmarked to help save the industries in question. Um, but I think there's still quite a bit of bird dogging to do, as they say. And we need to go in and, and figure out how to assure that these funds get to the intended recipients. And what were the competing priorities that you all were up against in, in uh, navigating the legislature to get some of these federal funds to come to venues? Well, the, the thing is, there's not a, there's not a shortage of funds. Um, it, it's, it's interesting that that's always presented as the picture. The, the federal government gave the state of Oregon $1.6 in CRF money. And the main concern I keep hearing about is that counties and regional solutions councils and other entities are overwhelmed by the amount of, of um, administration that they need to do that there's not there's not you know you don't hear too many stories um, about uh, one organization or one priority taking money out of the mouths of another priority mm. um, I've I've talked to a lot of legislatures about this I mean as First of, first of all, on this planet, I'm a human being, and um, I'm somewhere down the line, I'm a music venue owner. So, I mean, we, we're closed not just because of the mandate, but because we want people to be safe and we don't want to get the virus. So when I first approached these legislators, I was real sort of timid and careful. And I said, I know there's a lot of hurt going on right now. I know that there are a lot of people suffering. Um, over at Revolution Hall, we had um, nightly uh, demonstrations that were starting there. Mm -hmm. And for a while, I just sort of focused my efforts there um, on issues of equity and inclusion and representation. Um, and, and I felt, you know, it felt weird to ask for anything during those times, unless you were asking um, for something that would help with those issues. But all the while, in the background, uh, the legislators were, were working on our behalf and recognizing that um, as time went on and these organizations, these, these nonprofits and these businesses con continued to bleed, um, they were doing their work. And I'm, I'm, I gotta say, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be an Oregonian today because I feel mm -hmm. like the, um, the representation was, has been working away this whole time on um, helping with, with all of these issues. Lou Frederick yesterday 
another thing that was on their meeting agenda yesterday was uh, a bill that passed um, and Lou Frederick gave a very moving speech uh, he's a North Portland senator for your listeners um, about how uh, black people are disproportionately affected by the virus and um, so there is now a fund that helps deal with issues related to that disproportionate effect um, so you know these these priorities aren't so much competing to answer your question. Mm-hmm. I think they're walking along side by side, and it's just a matter of how long it takes for the government to move um, to get people in alignment. And that was probably our main issue was just getting people lined up. And I think that that was the main issue for Lou Fredericks and and the the initiative that was funded yesterday for for disproportionate effect of COVID on uh, people of color. Mm-hmm. And in your proposal, did you lay out the financial package that venues needed, or did you leave that to the legislators to figure out what the what the structure would be in the total amount? Uh, we left, we got a lot of guidance from the legislators on that mm-hmm. because we figured that they knew. We we just told them what basically here's our need, and and we described the the hole to them um, and how deep the hole was. And, reminded them that we would be closed until there's a vaccine mm. um so they they framed it really and that it was pretty beautiful i i worked with them to come up with some language to describe the framing of it um we called it life support for venues mm. because um none of these places you know including the shakespeare festival the pendleton roundup even metro and all these independent venues none of them are asking to be uh, to have any revenue replaced or to be made anything close to being whole or pre-COVID, what everybody's asking for in our industry is just enough of a trickle to survive this so that we can come out on the other side um, and still have our facilities and still have our businesses, maybe not intact, but at least still functionable. So, so to avoid to avoid bankruptcy and to avoid um, you know mortgage uh, foreclosures and things like that. So basically, it was called life support for venues. Our our part of this, um, which was actually the smallest of, of the things that were voted on yesterday, our little issue um, was called life support for venues. Um, informally, we called it that, and it just consisted of rent and mortgage payments while closed, mm-hmm. and uh, utilities while closed, and payroll while closed. And Jim, how can our listeners best support your work? Well, at this point, we're hoping for some federal relief, not just for venues, but for arts organizations and for artists and for some of these companies that fell through the cracks on the PPP. Um, that could be anybody from an opera uh, company that makes that makes uh, three or four productions a year, so therefore it may have fallen out of the ability to apply for certain loans because it's not sort of constantly employing people, but it's still an important part of the culture. Um, it could range from that to bands who are companies, but they don't have a payroll, but they have 1099, so therefore they didn't qualify or didn't believe that they would qualify for PPPs. So we continue to advocate for these groups and for other venues and venue-like entities uh, at the federal level. And so at the federal level, there's something called the Restart uh, Bill that has been introduced. It's a bipartisan, which is very rare. Um, effort in the Senate to procure funding for those entities and businesses that fell through the cracks of the PPP. So I think our next step is to help establish a small fund at the city level for um, anybody who fell through the cracks to apply to. 
and then we will continue our efforts as we have been doing uh, at the federal level in ha- holding hands with a, a national group called the National Independent Venue Association, which is NEVA. So if you people are interested in hearing about what, what we're doing at the federal level, you can join the Independent Venue Coalition at independentvenuecoalition.com or join NEVA at NEVASOC, that's N-I-V-A-S-S-O-C, dot com as well. And there's all sorts of stuff happening advocacy-wise there. Jim, thank you so much for the rundown and for offering how our listeners can best support your work. We really appreciate you. Yeah, we really appreciate you too, X-Ray. Thanks to Amanda, thanks to Jim for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray. X-ray. X-ray.